0: Let's hack the process together. Gina Bolton has gone from web design to web engineering and back again, so she understands what it takes to establish design standards for a project and make them attractive, both visually and technically. In addition, Gina's talent for evangelizing has helped make her lightning design system for Salesforce popular both inside the company and across the open source community. Hear how she built on her community organizing skills and went from hosting local meetups to creating Clarity, a conference all about design systems. Gina will tell us how she organized a small team to line up speakers, solicit sponsors, and get the word out, all while still holding down a full-time job and managing her own open-source projects on the side. Today, I'm talking with uh, Gina Bolton, and I first found out about her when I read the art and science of CSS, but since, she's been doing a lot of things. And most recently, uh, I attended uh, her Clarity Conference in San Francisco. Uh, Gina, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So I know you do a lot of things. How do you like to introduce yourself?
1: I usually just say I'm a designer. Um, These days, my focus is on design systems, particularly enterprise design systems,
0: so how would you distinguish a design system? What what is a design system?
1: Well, there's a lot of definitions. Um sometimes it can be as simple as just a brand system, like how logos are applied on multiple um things. Like for example, at at Clarity I had Richard Daney um talk about his work he did for NASA back in the 70s and it showed like all, all the places that his logos and, and design um worked across all these different things as a system. But these days in in the world of product design, uh, it's kind of become a more um, heavier term for um, more than just branding. So like in our case, our design system is um, how our our design works across multiple platforms and devices. It's also our guidelines. It's our CSS framework. Uh, We have a team that's Actively working on it, we we basically treat it as a product, and you know, as Nathan Curtis, who was one of the speakers, mentioned, it's it's a product serving uh, your product. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of answers to that question.
0: (laughs) I I was thinking a lot of people do get confused between the the notion of a brand, uh, like a branding package, and a design system. But it feels like a design system um, walks people through how to use how to use the tools and actually provides the tools themselves.
1: Uh, correct. At least in our case, uh, that's definitely for sure.
0: You've been working on a design system for Salesforce. I think it's called Lightning, right?
1: Uh, Yeah. So it was uh, designed and developed in conjunction with our new Lightning experience, which is our revamped uh, UI for um, Salesforce. And um, yeah, like, so as we were needing to build out all these new UI, um, screens and, and patterns, the design system was absolutely necessary to make this happen at scale.
0: And it, uh, it does incorporate branding elements as well, right?
1: Uh, yeah. Like we, we, for us, we don't go into the details of like how big the logo should be and how much space should be around the logo. But for us, it's more about, um, the the sense of aesthetic and brand across a product so it's more like you know how do we use color to convey uh different types of messaging or states um how do we use type how do we use um our different patterns in our ui um in a very consistent and cohesive way
0: and and i know that a lot of branding systems do that as well but i'm curious it it feels like uh, the the lightning system um also provides a lot of the technology that people need in order to implement this.
1: Yeah. So in our in our case for sure, um it it's the only way our design system will actually be used and followed is if by providing the tools and resources uh, to get people there. And so this helps both our designers and our developers. Um, and we have developers both internally as well as externally, because we have a platform where people build their apps. Uh, to live within the uh, Salesforce ecosystem. So this kind of helps them build apps that look and feel like they belong in that ecosystem.
0: Now Salesforce is huge. It seems to me like this is something that that evolved out of necessity. How, how how did you recognize the need for something like this? And then like, it's a massive project.
1: Well, so, I mean, it's something I've always wanted to do almost at almost every company I've ever worked at. Um, I, I did a style guide when I was an intern at a design agency, and ever since I've been trying to um, do this. But for Salesforce, like it's not even like an option; like it, it just has to happen because um, we have so many different products and features and uh, devices and platforms.
0: How How was Salesforce doing it before you started this?
1: Um, so it's hard to say since I wasn't there, but <laughs> <laughs> I. I I know they they did have a style guide um, for their uh, revamped mobile UI, which was called Salesforce One, and that's actually what attracted me to join this team. But from what I understand, it, you know, it was a beautiful showpiece, um, but people weren't really using it practically because it lacked the tools and resources. However, I I know they they had um, the sort of a basic foundation of what now is called design tokens. Um, It was more of like a XML based way of plugging in um, design attributes into their uh, proprietary framework that they were building in. So they could do things like, you know, apply brand blue, like across the platform. And if we change brand blue, it would change everywhere. Um, So before the Lightning design system, I spent, like, my first maybe year or so kind of helping, like, evolve the design tokens to be more, um, um, like, semantic and and organized, and uh, we created Theo, which was our open source tool to make that scale across native devices as well as other uh, web-based platforms. Um, so yeah like we kind of have like we had like some of the elements in place and then the lightning design system um was like our official initiative to get all these things um documented and and distributed um and you know anytime you put a name on something it's official
0: (laughs) that's a good tip it's something to keep in mind so when you were starting out it's like that they had been they had been trying a couple of things but you you recognized the need for something that was more comprehensive i guess
1: yeah and i i don't want to take all the credit for that like it, it's definitely a team effort um i had some colleagues on the team that we were all passionate about this and um i think what kind of made it um real was when we finally um embarked on building the css framework and initially that framework um we we kind of thought it would be a little while before it got adopted but it turns out um people needed that like immediately <laughs> and so um once we actually built the that technology and those tools that's kind of when when it got embraced uh throughout the organization and it was really exciting to see it get adopted so widely so quickly um, also a little daunting, but <laughs> very exciting. <laughs>
0: it sounds like providing people with, uh, with a tool that they desperately needed and that you were basically giving them for free um, was one of the things that helped improve adoption of this right away.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I can see that. And one of the things also that I think you bring to the table that makes this so successful is you also have a passion for evangelizing.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tell me about that, because a, a lot of people who who develop this kind of things, a lot of engineers, a lot of designers, they, they tend to like you know go into the background. They want to work in their little quiet space and distribute things, maybe do a little bit of research on how the users are responding to it. But it's mostly not about sharing it with the world the way that you do.
1: Yeah. So i um, I've always I've always been interested in sharing what I've learned because that's how I've learned is other people sharing what they did and not to talk too much about Apple but a big reason why I left was because I couldn't really talk about my work and that was very frustrating for me but it's not just like like there's obviously the external element like I I love writing and speaking and tweeting and like talking about what I do externally but I think like at a company like Salesforce it's really important to evangelize things internally as well um so, like yesterday, some of my teammates uh did a brown bag um uh, I guess you say like a a screencast uh presentation of here's what it is here's why we're doing it here's how we did it here's how you can use it here's how much code you'll end up deleting by using it here's um how fast it takes to build a component by reusing these micro patterns and micro components um and like I it was just so exciting because like a lot of people watched that screencast and um when when you start to talk about it and show um what you're doing rather than just talking about it, people get really excited and, and they become evangelists too, which is really great. Like I've seen people on our internal um we, we use this tool called chatter. Just people helping us spread the word and telling people, hey, like, you should use the design system.
0: <laughs> That's wonderful. And that must be very gratifying, too.
1: Oh, absolutely. The uh,
0: the, the ability to, to like, get other people to help evangelize you, do you have to provide them with a lot of resources and tools to make that possible?
1: To a certain extent. So for our developers right now, um, it's gotten much easier because our CSS framework is now in the core framework of our product. So they just need to use our classes. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of older components that need to go back and get retrofitted at some point. But for anything net new or anything that we are um, revisiting, they get that for free. They just have to use our classes in the way that we tell them to. But we also have native uh, developers who can't take advantage of our CSS. So for them, we still use design tokens. So it's essentially like SAS variables, but they get it in XML or JSON or whatever the format is that's appropriate for their platform. Um, So they're just getting the design attributes rather than uh, coded uh, components. For right now, we're looking into other options, but for right now, that's how they consume it. And then our designers, some of them can work in code and it's been great watching them very quickly put screen to, uh, screens together using real code. Some of our designers aren't as comfortable with that, and so we're constantly looking at how to make their their process easier and what that delivery or that spec looks like um, in a way that's maintainable. So
0: and it's it's constantly evolving, obviously.
1: Oh yeah, like that's the key to a living design system. Is you're you're going to create new things, you're going to change things, you're going to deprecate things. Like it's going to constantly change.
0: So was there, was there resistance to this when you started trying to roll it out inside of Salesforce?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about internal politics, but there was, (laughs) you know, obviously you got the people that are like, well, why don't we use Bootstrap or Foundation or any of the other frameworks out there? And, and it's a very good question and, um, one that we did consider, but honestly, like those frameworks were solving a different problem than what we were trying to solve and, just the nature of how we have so many different developers and so many different tech stacks. We have to be very agnostic about, you know, what is our uh, class structure? Um, how do we avoid clashing with other frameworks? How do we allow people to use this on React or, or JQuery or even like C, you know, like whatever whatever their uh, platform is. So, um, yeah, so it, it was initially there were, there, was a little bit of uh conflict and us even starting this. But again, like sh- the show don't tell once we actually had something up and people saw it, then it, everybody was like, Oh yeah, we need to use this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like the show. Don't tell approach. Where did you start showing this?
1: So we put up a um, prototype version of our site up internally and and initially um, we were sending it around to other designers. I, I actually don't recall like at what point the developers found out about it, but it got spread wildly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now we um, at Salesforce, we we have like this portal page you go to where you get access to all sorts of different things, like everything from your payroll to your internet links, like all that stuff. And one of the tiles on there now is our design system. And so everyone has access to this tile that they click and they can get access to all sorts of resources and tools to, uh, use this. So it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a real thing now. (laughs) It's
0: a real thing inside of Salesforce and outside of Salesforce. How did you realize that this was something that was going to be useful to people outside of Salesforce as well?
1: Yeah. Like uh, when we first launched the, um, uh, the beta because we we had an alpha that we were using with our um, third party developers uh, when we announced the lightning design system, it was beta, and i you know we were all pretty excited to see um what kind of traction it would get, but what floored me was so uh, we open sourced it and what floored me was like how quickly people were already like submitting um components or ideas. People were even creating um, third-party React or Angular or uh, Bootstrap-like integrations with the design system so that they could use it for whatever their use was. And then they were distributing it. So I think like within four hours of announcing it, somebody had already built like a react library on top of our design system. the open
0: source community is just amazing, isn't it?
1: Yeah. It just, it really floored us. And it still floors us to this day of, um, how many people are building things for it. And it's, uh, it's exciting, but it can also be a little scary, (laughs) but, um, yeah, and then um, seeing people tweet about it and blog about it and speak about it, like we get excited every single time, even though like it's been out for um, almost a year now. And we still get super stoked every time we see a mention anywhere.
0: <laughs> was this your first opportunity to do something with the open source community?
1: Uh, no, actually, my first opportunity was with the SaaS website. I'm a big fan of SaaS, and they needed a new website design, and so I offered to help. And now I, I basically drive that initiative. And it was as a designer, it was kind of nerve-wracking at first, because especially when you've worked in a design agency um, environment, like it's very natural to want to hold your design close until you have the big reveal. And then like everyone gets excited and see the big reveal and then you get patted on the back, like, you know, like it's just kind of a thrill to have that. So the idea of designing out in the open was terrifying for me because it's just not something I, I was used to doing. But um, the first sasconf was about to happen and uh, we needed to get the site out and I knew it wasn't like perfect, but. We ended up launching it at Sasconf, and I knew it it still needed some work, but you know open sourced it, and like immediately um you know talking about the open source community, immediately pull requests were submitted, typos were fixed, bugs were fixed, and I realized like, wow, like I people will do my work for me. that's kind of cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> being able to coordinate that is a real challenge
1: yeah um. So that was a big learning process for me. And and then I realized like there was a lot of benefit to it. Um, So much so that I ended up uh, writing a 24 ways article about why you should design for open source. And like now it's kind of exciting. Like we, I I love being at a company where we have open source tools that uh, we can put out there. And um, I, I'd love to see like if, if we're helping people try to solve the same problems that we're trying to solve. Or maybe they have better ideas and they can contribute back.
0: So with the, with the SaaS community, I think you've also become involved with their mix-ins, right?
1: Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so the mix-in is a local meetup that I started um, for SaaS, but it's definitely not the first. There's a lot of SaaS meetups all over the world now. Mine, I I'm particularly, not to pat myself on the back, but I feel pretty... Excited about mine in particular because, well, I'm in San Francisco, which means I have access to a lot of core, like, team members. and uh, Not to mention
0: Hampton Catlin, who invented
1: SAS. Exactly. He was our first speaker, who was um, the inventor of SAS. So, um, and then I've had Chris Epstein a couple times and some other people that are um, prominent in the SAS community that either live here or travel to San Francisco so then we'll plan like a meetup around their um, time here. So yeah, I feel pretty fortunate that we've we've had a pretty stellar um, lineup of speakers so far.
0: No, the mix in is a lot of fun. I've been to a couple, and uh, is is that uh, was that your first uh, experience with uh, doing community organizing?
1: Yeah, so I I've been to a lot of meetups, but the mix in was my first uh, foray into organizing my own and. It actually started when when I was at Do.com, which was a small startup that Salesforce used to own. Uh, that's actually how I joined Salesforce initially. We wanted to start doing meetups at our office, so that was the one that we did. And then when Do.com shut down and I was moved over, to, or I, I, I chose to move over uh, to the core team, I took the meetup with me with permission, of course, um, started doing them independently. And... I I think what's helped to keep going is that I don't do them monthly. I do them quarterly, um, which helps give enough time to build up momentum again for the next one. (laughs) Um, Also, I'm busy. (laughs) But then there was a period of time at Salesforce where I was acting as sort of like part-time UX events and social outreach and evangelism uh, because we didn't have anybody full-time doing that. Um, so I ended up not only organizing mix-ins, but I also would help organize other meetups that we were either hosting or sponsoring. So if we have a full-time person now, so I, I don't do that anymore for Salesforce, but I still do the, the mix-in on my own. And then that, of course, uh, inspired me to want to do Clarity, which I feel like it, I'm still stoked at how how awesome that went. <laughs>
0: Clarity was awesome, it, and it, it's amazing, uh, given the given the ramp-up that you're talking about in terms of your own development of, of event planning. Event planning is a huge responsibility. I'm, how did you even get started with that?
1: It's never really something I had considered exploring, but I do know, like, anytime I've been involved with, like, even if it's, like, planning a house party or anything like that. Like I always get really excited to see people come together and talk to each other and and hang out and see new friendships get made and stuff like that. And so the meetup thing, I I just kind of found myself really enjoying that aspect of it. And, you know, like it's it's not officially my job now, but it's somewhere I could see myself maybe going into later in my career. Like if I want to have a change in pace of what I'm doing, I might go into trying this full time. I don't know. It definitely was interesting for Clarity because it was not only getting people together, but it was getting people together about my favorite, like thing that I focus on, which is design systems. So it's like an awesome best of both worlds situation. (laughs)
0: uh, And the lineup of speakers is amazing. Were, Were a lot of those people people you already had in your network? Or were they people you had to reach out to specifically for clarity?
1: The majority of the people were people that I already knew. Some of them I, I had met in person, some of them I'd only known online. Like Nathan Curtis um, was somebody who we've been chatting back and forth about design system stuff because we're both, you know, total geeks about it, but we had never met in person um, until then. And then there were some people that I had never met or even knew online, but just uh, sent a cold email to them. Um, for example, Richard Daney, the guy that did the NASA branding back in the 70s, as well as like Anna Pickard from Slack. had never met her before, but they were people I really wanted to have at my event and um, was super stoked when they said yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Tell me, what was the response rate like? I know some people sometimes rejection is one of the reasons people don't even bother doing the cold reach out stuff.
1: Yeah, so initially it was exciting because pretty much everybody I was asking was saying yes. Um, but there were a couple... Uh, rejections. One of them, you know, was on a honeymoon, somebody else just didn't really have a reason just said, I'm just not in the place right now in my life to do this. And so, you know, it was kind of a bummer, because these were people I really wanted to see at my event. But I had to like, not take it personally and just understand, like, you know, not everyone can just pack up their bags and head to San Francisco, like for a two day event. Like, it's kind of a expensive haul for some people
0: absolutely but it sounds like you had mostly positive responses
1: oh yeah and it also i also once i announced it i had already had my lineup put together when i announced it and then i kind of felt bad because i didn't do a call for proposal and a lot of people reached out like wanting to speak and i had to be the rejecter (laughs) you know like i'm so sorry like i already have a full lineup
0: Oh, that must be hard. But of course, Clarity two point right?
1: Well, yeah, I definitely have a, a second year in the works that I'm planning. But to be honest, I I already have like a backlog for that one too. <laughs> so. Well,
0: uh, how how did you how did you launch the the Clarity conference to to guests?
1: It was primarily Twitter. I um, put up a landing page that just had a email newsletter sign up and I think my tweet was exactly so I'm planning a thing dot 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 and then link to it and already started getting email signups but it wasn't until maybe five or six months later that I finally announced what that thing exactly was and then got started announcing some of the speakers very slowly and it was all over Twitter you know just releasing a name one by one and then, you know, I started a Facebook group for it, too. But honestly, the Facebook group d- or page didn't really get that much traction or that many followers. It, it was all mostly through Twitter. And then once, like, Smashing Mag and CSS Tricks and a few other publications tweeted about it. That's when I really saw all the signups start to happen. And it was just like, because I got worried. I was like, oh, nobody's going to come. There's like three people signed up. And then next thing I knew, it was like tons. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're getting Smashing Mag and CSS Tricks involved as well. I think that, that's uh, that's very helpful in terms of getting an audience out there.
1: Yeah. How
0: did, how did you get them involved?
1: I, I was at a conference in Barcelona and Chris Coyer was there and we we got lunch together and I told him about my conference and that's when I asked him if he wanted to MC and he, um, actually no, I might've emailed him first. I, um, it's all running together, but I remember talking to him about it there and that's when we kind of got uh, code pen and CSS tricks involved. And then I think it was, a, so that was Smashing Conf in Barcelona and then I was at SmashingConf again, but this time in Oxford. And I was talking to Vitaly about it. And Vitaly, you know, is a fellow conference organizer. So it was great talking to him about it because he gave me a lot of advice and some of his take on what it's like to organize a conference. Um, so I ended up looping him in on being a in-kind sponsor as well. So he gave us a few books to give away and showed up to the event. And it was it was really cool. And he, he live tweeted it, which was amazing because that really brought more attention to it and then people were like, oh man, I missed this year, but I'm definitely gonna be at next year.
0: <laughs> it was nice that you brought Site point in as well to do the the videos of the the speech, the speeches. Yeah,
1: I'm I'm so excited that happened because honestly like videography is really expensive and I just didn't have it in the budget to do it. And just at the it was like the last minute they they came through and it was like we'll pay for it and we'll host the videos and yeah and that was that was super exciting because there, there was just so many like awesome moments at the conference that I wanted people to see like some of the things people said and uh, some of the content in, in the, the presentations were were solid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we'll definitely put a link in the show notes to the SitePoint to premiums free offer for people so they can come and watch the uh, the event as well.
1: Yeah, so like right now it's it's for premium members and people that attended the conference, but in a few months it'll be public for everyone.
0: That's an interesting approach. I'm I'm curious how you decided on that uh, that staged rollout.
1: Uh that actually was uh their idea and you know, since they're paying for the the videos, I thought it was a fair deal. So, yeah, it was just part of the the sponsorship package. Um and, you know, as as long as all the attendees got access right away, and that it did go public at some point. Um, I was I was happy with the deal.
0: It it came together so cleanly too. It's it's it was you know completely hidden that there was any chaos under the under the uh, under the covers.
1: <laughs> That's hilarious that you say that because like for me, I saw all the things that bugged me and things that weren't perfect, and I fretted about all those little things. And then when I was uh, would tell people later. They were like, "Oh, I didn't even notice."
0: <laughs> no, no, it, it really did come together. Well, this was your first t- time really organizing one of these things completely by yourself. Or, well, with your team, but 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 as the organizer.
1: Yeah. So I I had a few volunteers. You know, my my fr- friend and former uh, coworker Christopher um, helped out with some of the swag because uh, I didn't have time. So he got stickers and the bags, and then my friend Josh helped with the logo. And then my friend Tristan helped with the little animation that was, was showing at the beginning of the conference, but they had trouble showing it. So we just had to show a still image. Um, and then some volunteers that showed up on site to help pack the swag bags and check people in and all that stuff. So it was really great getting some help, but I think next year I'm going to ask for more help because I was stressed. (laughs) There was a lot of work.
0: (laughs) Well, you you looked excited. I'll say that.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. I was running on adrenaline. I couldn't even eat. And I was just like, like running around like with so much energy.
0: <laughs> you put together a great team of folks. And I'm glad to hear that there's another one coming. I expected that there would be. And I, I also like that you kept the price of the conference down to a point where it was reasonable, so it would not be difficult for people to get their companies to expense that.
1: Yeah, so I, I was very conflicted initially on what to price it at. But I looked at what other uh, small indie conferences like SAS Conf and CSS Conf and a bunch of other conferences, and just kind of came up with a price that I thought wasn't totally ridiculous, but would help really make sure that the event didn't fall flat, because you know that venue was really expensive, <laughs> and it was unfortunate because there were a couple people that did complain about the price, even still, um, even though it was pretty low compared to most conferences. I think next year I I will do like a non-profit and student rate, maybe a early bird, because I want to make sure um, I can, you know, have more people going if they can go. But also I don't want to end up screwing myself over by pricing it too low.
0: <laughs> Did you have sponsored scholarships as well?
1: So I didn't this year, but it's definitely something I'm considering for next year because, you know, for the first year, I just had to make sure um, I could even get the event to go. <laughs> um, but now that I've seen like, okay, like this, this event has, has traction, people will come, then I can start talking to sponsors to see if they, they will do this. Or maybe I think SAS Conf did a model where you could pay for a sponsor ticket as an individual along with buying your own ticket. So I might explore something like that too.
0: That's an interesting model. I like that. So, so it's interesting. You do, do you yourself go to a lot of conferences?
1: Yeah, um, usually um, as a speaker, but sometimes attending. Like next week, I'll be at Google I.O. just as a wanderer. (laughs) But yeah, Clarity was basically me just stealing all the good ideas from all the other places I've been to that I thought was good. (laughs)
0: Like a true artist.
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: So, um, so you've, you learned a lot from people who've, who've run other conferences, basically, and you were mentioning a couple of the folks. Um, I'm I'm curious, where do you feel like you got the most, the, the, the best secrets, the best things that you've stolen?
1: So some, some things have happened at more than one conference. Like, for example, getting a ride from the airport as a speaker is such a nice gesture. So I wanted to make sure I did that for my speakers if, if, you know, their schedules um, allowed for that. Um, For the attendees, like if you're already going to be paying a ticket price that for some people was pretty steep, um, though for some people they considered it cheap, I I just wanted to make sure everybody was fed. So making sure food was part of it. That's happened at multiple conferences. The packets that I sent out to attendees and speakers of like, here's what all is going on, here's where the venue is, here's where parking is, Uh, here's public transportation, places to visit. That I took from Smashing Conf, but I, I gave Vitaly a heads up that I was taking that idea and he's like, yeah, it's fine, do it. I thought it was such a nice gesture, like either as an attendee or a speaker to receive this packet that has so much information about places to go and things to do. Um, it's really thoughtful.
0: Yeah. It, I loved also that it was a one-track conference.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I, Not to speak ill of any conference that doesn't do a single track, but... I just, I can't stand multiple tracks because I want to be able to see everything. And it really sucks when there's two talks up at the same time that you want to see and you have to choose one. I just think they make for much better conferences. And it also exposes people to things that they might have skipped otherwise. For example, very few people, I well, maybe that's not a fair statement, but a lot of people would skip a talk on accessibility because it's not exactly in the realm of what they do. But by making it part of the track and, you know, Cordelia gave a fantastic talk and she made it very entertaining and fun. Like people really enjoyed it. And I even saw tweets of people saying, wow, like I never would have thought as accessibility talk would be like really fun and cool. Um,
0: that was one of my favorite presentations. And I, I'll, I'll admit admitted accessibility nerd, but, um, but I thought that it was brilliantly presented. I'm curious how... You know, you you're running this stuff at Salesforce. You're organizing these conferences. What is your routine? How do you keep yourself organized on a day to day basis?
1: <laughs> you think I'm organized? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you fooled me. <laughs>
1: yeah, I am not organized. <laughs> no, um, honestly, like I, I, I mean, the things that I'm doing, I, I'm fortunate that my job is something I'm very passionate about. And that this stuff is stuff I'm very passionate about. But in a way, like I, I do work more than I should.
0: But you know this.
1: Yeah. Um. So for the conference stuff, for Clarity especially, that wasn't a Salesforce event. So that was done on my own time. But I'm super grateful to my team and my manager because they allowed me to take some time off to, to focus on it and get it done. Because they knew it was important, not only for me, but for the industry, and, and um, you know, it, they all, like, came and supported, which was awesome, and then, you know, for things like the mix-in, um, that's kind of nights and weekends, but it's not, if a company is sponsoring and hosting, I actually don't have a lot of work to do other than find the speakers and show up, <laughs> so um, that's pretty pretty easy, but the other things, yeah, it's usually, you know, weekend stuff, like after I'm done talking to you, I'll probably, I I need to work on getting a, um, some sort of article or post out about Clarity, which it happened almost two months ago and I still haven't posted about it. So,
0: <laughs> this is, so uh, so I'm curious, what, what did you, what tools did you use that you found useful for, uh, for actually for keeping track of all of the things that were going on at Clarity?
1: So for Clarity, it was, you know, a combination of MailChimp and Eventbrite, um in a spreadsheet <laughs> um yeah so eventbrite has a lot of integrations which is why i chose it like it it has um mailchimp integrations it has um even the badge making service that i use it's all um integrated so it was a really quick easy way um to get things running and they also sponsored so they did the opening party so if i had like any questions about things like they were happy to to help um, next year i'm probably going to use a different service um, i, I won 't mention it yet in case that doesn't actually happen, but there's another service that people've recommended and they 've reached out um, interested to to be involved next year um, so i'm looking forward to that, but yeah, it was mostly manual like i I had a spreadsheet where I was tracking all my expenses um, sponsor details down to like how many tweets i I was supposed to tweet about them and how many Tickets I was giving them. Like it was all just uh, a massive spreadsheet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What about team communications?
1: Uh, So I used Slack, and instead of creating a brand new Slack, I used the design system Slack, which I uh, started maybe six months ago, I think, maybe more. Um, So I had a, a public channel in there for anyone to talk about the conference. And then I had a private channel for speakers, and another private channel for uh, my volunteers and me.
0: Okay, okay. And, uh, and a shared document system of any kind?
1: There was some usage of Google Docs and, and, and such, but it was mostly just discussion through Slack. And then anything that was more like, about, like, high level organizational stuff, I just did in that spreadsheet.
0: And hey, you're coming from Salesforce. Did you use CRM?
1: I did not, and I probably could have, but yeah, I just didn't think to. <laughs> I guess because I was doing it, since I was doing it through Eventbrite and MailChimp, like, I already had contacts um, in both of those. It is something I, I could consider for next year. Like, we we have a um, smaller offering called Salesforce IQ. It used to be called Relate IQ that might be m- more appropriate for the size of what I'm doing. So um, definitely we'll explore that and see if that's, that's something that's good for running a conference. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so if you were going back and starting over again, is there something you would do differently about the way that you organized this?
1: Uh, I would have started earlier. <laughs> um, a lot of the ramp up was towards the last few months. Um, and that was mostly just because of me doing this by myself. Like I, I had a lot on my plate <laughs> Um And then, like I said before, I would probably involve more people to help and take some of the ownership of some of the aspects that maybe I'm not awesome at. (laughs) And then also just some of the things that I did from, you know, like I I mentioned, like I want to have more ticket offerings. I was thinking it might be good. Um, So I paid an honorarium to speakers unless they um, declined. And everyone got everyone who didn't decline got the same honorarium, but some speakers chose not to be recorded. And so from more of a, a value standpoint, I think I might offer two levels of honorariums next year based on whether or not you're you're going to let yourself be recorded.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds also like having a, a strong open source uh, project and a strong community of followers already was very helpful in, in getting this launched out.
1: Yeah, like I... I will admit, like, I I definitely relied on my follower base for for getting the word out there. And I, in terms of trying to get sponsorship, um, which also led to getting the word out, I literally went down my entire list of people that I followed. (laughs) And if they worked at a company that I thought might be interested, I reached out to them. And that was a lot of people because I follow probably like 1,400 or so people. Um, So... Um, Well, some of those are organizations and brands, so that's not really an accurate number. But of the people I follow, like I reached out to a lot of them and whoever was unable to help at least tweeted about it or, or mentioned it. So it helped definitely get the word out there.
0: Actually, sponsorships is another area where rejection can sometimes be something that slows people down.
1: Yeah, for sure. I I was nervous initially because, you know, because I started so late, a lot of people already had capped their sponsorship budget for the time frame that my event was happening. Um, But yeah, like in the last month, like it was like a miracle, like all these companies came through and um, even one that told me no came back later and was like, okay, we'll do it.
0: (laughs) I think they saw the momentum that you were building. Yeah. All right. Well, so um, how can people find you online?
1: Uh, So on Twitter, um, Gina, just J-I-N-A. The same on Instagram and Dribbble and GitHub. (laughs) Or you can just go to Gina.me and hit hit up my contact form. (laughs) Very
0: cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.